Well, good morning. It is good to see you and from my family to yours, a very Merry Christmas. It's a busy time for many of you. This morning may have been the first time you kind of sat down and had a big sigh of relief. For the next hour or two, you don't have anywhere to go. You don't have any Christmas presents to shop. Now, if you've got your phone and it's on Amazon app, I need you to turn that off, okay? Because you're thinking, I've only got a few days to get all that in before they won't deliver in time for Christmas. But I do want to say welcome to you who are here in the venue and welcome to you who are online. If you're online with us, if you're able, we would love to see you in person. Community is great, but it's best in the flesh. And so we invite you to be here with us in person so that we can uh, love and encourage one another. And at any time uh, this morning, if you feel like you need some sugar, please go to the back. You're not going to bother me. Sugar up, all right? So that's important. The Lord does some cool things in the midst of some sugar highs, all right? But the enemy attacks that sugar lows. I'll just go ahead and say that. That's a different sermon. Hey, I was a student pastor for 16 years, and during that time, we played many games. Some games um, I wouldn't ever play again. again. Some games I probably should have been sued for. Some games were unsafe, but you know, I've moved on and beyond all that. And so now I look at our student ministry and I'm praying that things don't go the way that I once had in my life uh, in terms of games. One of the games we used to play is a game called Rumors. And we would line kids up in two lines and we would hand the child at the beginning of the line a card. And on that card was a sentence. And both lines, both beginning of the, show, both, uh, beginning of the lines had the same sentence. And it was anything. The intent was to get the child to, to, to take that sentence hold it in their head and then remember what it said and then whisper that sentence to the person behind them and so forth and so forth and so forth. And so it was kind of a, kind of a race, if you will. And so it could have been on the, on the card, a sentence like this, Peter had a pumpkin that he would sell every October at the market. And as it would race down from child to child to child, child, just having it memorized in their head, inevitably we get to the end and the winner who was most close to the beginning of the sentence, to the accuracy of the sentence would, would win. And so Peter had a pumpkin that he would sell every October at the market, usually turned into something crazy and silly and moronic, like Matt Sullivan is jealous of Casey Winstead's mustache or something like that. And so it's this weird thing. And the accuracy of the sentence kind of fell apart. And it was mangled up by a bunch of eighth graders trying to share it. And I don't know about you, I'm a parent of teenagers. I've got some at home, some away. But has your teenager ever come to you with these exact words? There was something very important my teacher told me to tell you, but I have forgotten. And I'm like, I, that doesn't do me anything other than just create anxiety in my heart. So now I've got to ask your teacher what's going on. And teach, just like teenagers, often share what they hear with, while forgetting some important details. I think we have done the same thing at times with the Christmas story. We've allowed tradition and song, movies and plays to affect the truth of Christmas. And often our holiday tradition have overshadowed the holy day truth. And it's important to know the truth of Christmas. This helps us have a deeper, better understanding of, of who God is, what he's doing when Jesus comes uh, to the earth, who we are as men and mankind, and how we'll respond to that. If we have a deeper understanding of the Christmas story, uh, we have a deeper understanding of the gospel. We have a deeper understanding of the entire New Testament, really, of the entire scriptures. It also helps us be able to defend the truth with people who may think, oh, the Christmas story is not real. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's made up. There's skeptics and doubters out there. And we have a responsibility apologetically to encourage and engage the truth of Christmas in dialogue and conversation. And if you don't know the truth of Christmas, or if you've kind of 
put the truth of the scripture and the truth of tradition and put them together and all of a sudden you have your own version of Christmas, it gets very, very confusing. So for the next couple of weeks, Pastor Dave and I are leading into a series called The Case for Christmas. So we're going to take an in-depth look of some misconceptions uh, of the Christmas story, both to kind of firm up some understanding, but as well to be equipped to defend that truth and the reliability of the Bible. So today's message is entitled Holiday or Holy Day, the Truth of Christmas. And I want to unpack just, just really a few things this morning, a few assumptions that we make about the Christmas story, and then some practical applications of the truth of the Christmas story. Now, the Christmas narrative is told in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, as well as in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And both accounts support one another. They, they complement one another. And, and each account's a little different in scope in terms of details. For example, Matthew focuses a bit more on Joseph, while Luke focuses more on Mary. And so this morning, we're going to take a little deeper look at Mary. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2. And if you want to get ahead, you need to find Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be there in a few moments as well, Hebrews chapter 4. But for right now, let's look at Luke's account of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 7. And I'll read it. This morning, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up. From Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Very familiar passage of scripture. We read this throughout the years, certainly Christmas time, but every Christmas we probably are looking at this passage and it's important, it's, it's incredibly valid because as we begin to think the Christmas story, we begin to really unpack some truth. Often though, as I mentioned earlier, we allow song or carols or Christmas plays or the 1.2 million Hallmark movies to determine our version of the Christmas story, to take away or to add truths that are not in the scripture. So I wanna unpack some assumptions this morning. There are assumptions about Christmas, especially about Mary, the wise man, and a barn. One of the first assumptions about Christmas is that we think Mary rode to Bethlehem on a donkey. And I, I hate to burst, like right now you people are thinking, I've got Christmas ornaments up where Mary's on a donkey and I don't know what to do about that. It's okay, just let this rest this morning. When you get home, you can deal with your decorations or the, like the, the false cards that you bought, the unbiblical lack of theology cards that you've given to your family. And it's fine, you deal with that later, but for right now, just receive this, okay? So the scripture says that they went up to the city of David known as Bethlehem. There's no mule, there's no donkey, there's no camel, there's no horse, there's no piggyback, there's nothing. We don't know how Mary gets there, but we just know that Mary and Joseph, they get there. When we think that Mary rode an animal, it's not in the Bible. So don't put her on a donkey. Don't make her ride an animal. She, she doesn't do that here. We, we assume that in our holiday tradition, cast a shadow over the holy day truth. That's a, that's a really easy one. 
Another assumption we make is that Mary was urgently pregnant. Now, there's pregnant and then there's urgently pregnant, right? There's doctor visits and ultrasounds and positive tests. That's kind of pregnant, right? But there's the water breaking and, and the contractions close together, lots of pain. That's what I call urgently pregnant. So I've held the hand of my pregnant wife and it was nice and sweet and kind. And I've held the hand of my urgently pregnant wife and it's, it's not so kind, it's not so nice. A lot of pain in there. Well, we often in scripture think that Mary is panicked and great with child when she gets to Bethlehem. The scripture doesn't really tell us that. Scripture says in verse six, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. We have this feeling that they barely made it to Bethlehem. We have this feeling that as soon as they get there, they, they, they needed to deliver Jesus, but there's no mention of this urgency. There's no mention of this panic. She could have been in Bethlehem five minutes or five months. There's no indication of time. And so we provide in through our tradition and, and through carol and song or, or even plays that there's this panic, there's this alarm, there's an anxiety. Listen, don't make Mary urgently pregnant. Don't do that to her, okay? She's not ready. We don't know about the timing of that. So our holiday tradition casts a shadow over Holy Day truth. Another assumption is that, now this is where your decorations are really gonna get messed up. And I apologize for all the people in the room who gotta go buy new decorations. It's not, it's the Bible's fault. It's not my fault. The other assumption is there are three wise men. Some of you guys are like, great, this is gonna cost me big dollars. There's mention of wise men, there's mention of magi, but there's never a mention of how many. Matthew's account gives great detail about who the wise men were. Matthew chapter two, verse one, it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, after Jesus was born, so if your wise men are there when Jesus is born, you need to put them on the east side of your house and then get them <laughs> day by day closer to your nativity scene, okay? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now the idea of three come with the idea of the three gifts that are there in Matthew chapter two, verse 11, where he mentions gold, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But the idea of three wise men is just an assumption. There could have been three, but we can't claim for truth that there were three. Let us be careful about our truth of our own mind over the truth of scripture. And then another assumption is Jesus was born in a barn. And there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of truth to that. We, we kind of get this biblical ambiguity because we put Jesus in the manger of feeding trough for animals. And, and so we assume that, that in our world, in our context, in America, in the West, a, a feeding trough goes in a barn or a feeding trough goes on a farm. It's, it's not something we have in our home. But if you've traveled the world, if you've gone to third world countries, but especially right here in the New Testament, there was often a place in, inside a home under roof where they would let animals in at night and then they would let them out in the morning. They were protecting those animals. And, and so often there'd be a main room of a home and then off to the side, there'd be a, what was known as called an animal room. And so there would have been mangers inside people's homes, especially during this time. And, and you can see it, uh, we see it in India when we travel there for mission. I've seen it in South America. America, I've seen it in Africa, uh, but in our context, we think, oh, manger, therefore there must be a barn, and there's just no truth to that, because doesn't, Scripture doesn't say it. Scripture just says that Jesus was laid in a manger there in verse 7. But it could be that maybe the most two significant assumptions about the Christmas story and Christmas narrative revolve around the inn and a fairy tale. 
And, and it's here I want to just pause for a moment and talk about the inn and this idea that the Christmas story is a fairy tale. We assume Joseph and Mary were turned away at the end. Let's read, if you've got your scriptures, let's read Luke chapter two, verse seven. She gave birth to the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We make a lot of assumptions about this verse. Traditionally, we think that there is a character that's, that's not present, but present in our mind. And we call this person the innkeeper. Now, because we're in church, we have to be honest together. Can we be honest together? How many of you have played an innkeeper in a children's play or a children's musical, something here at church or something at your school? Anybody played an innkeeper? Some of you are, oh, we got one innkeeper over here. It's okay, we're praying for you. Anybody else, couple? That's, a, oh, in the back, okay. So if you're an innkeeper, I'm sorry. You're not in the Christmas story. You're a made up fictitious person that we thought, you know what, I bet they were turned away. Well, who spoke that word? Probably an innkeeper. There's no innkeeper present in the story. And it's okay if some of your minds are blown right now. We've got chocolate and sugar in the back and an emotional support dog for you later. Minus the dogs, you'll be okay, all right? Beyond the fact there's no innkeeper, it's highly unlikely that they would have turned away Mary. We make that in our mind as well, that she was turned away. Scripture doesn't point to the fact that she was turned away. It would have been almost a cultural um, uh, issue for someone to turn away a Jewish woman who was great with child or pregnant with a child. It, it wouldn't have been something outside the realm of Jewish culture. Jewish culture is an incredibly hospitable culture. They're, they're an inviting culture. They're, they're a helping culture. It would have been unthinkable to turn her away in her condition. In fact, if you would have done so, you quite possibly could have been ostracized from that community. And, and, and let's consider the inn itself. The scripture doesn't give us a lot of clues about this inn. There was no place for them in the inn. Now, it's interesting here because we have a mind of like a Bethlehem Motel 6. Okay, that's kind of what we have in our heads. That there's an inn, kind of like a hotel motel. And, and so there are lots of rooms and there's someone there managing that. When truthfully, the, there, the reality of the inn is, is a bit complex. It's more complex than our than what we make it up in our mind. There were hotels in the New Testament day, but there were probably no hotels or no inns in this tiny little town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not on a trade route. It wasn't a, a large bustling city. It was probably packed due to the census being taken, but in terms of, of being a place where there would have been a lot of lodging in a hotel or an inn kind of setting um, is not the case at all. The, the likelihood is that Joseph and Mary are going to stay with relatives in this town where he is from, where this family is from. The word for in here is a Greek word called katalima, and, and it's a unique word. It's used two other places in the scripture. Both places that's used in the scripture, in Luke chapter 22 and Matthew 14, refer to a guest room or an upper room. Now, when I say upper room, your minds go to where the disciples had the last supper with Jesus. And that's exactly the word used. That they were in the katalima, they were in the upper room having the Passover meal with Christ. If Luke wanted to describe a commercial lodging setting 
or like a regular Bethlehem Holiday Inn, he would have used a word he used in Luke chapter 10. This word is used around the story of the Good Samaritan where Jesus shares the parable of a Samaritan who goes and and binds the wounds of of a robbery victim and he he takes him to an inn where there he pays the innkeeper, he's real, he's in that story, pays an innkeeper a sum of money to care for this victim. But in Luke chapter 10, that's a different word than what's right here in Luke chapter six. The scholar David Cruteau in his book, Urban Legends of the New Testament, describes how New Testament homes would have looked in the Middle East. Most houses had a large family room and and quite possibly an animal room, but some houses had a second room off the family room called a guest room. It would have had an exterior door. This is what's known as the katalima. It's what Luke probably had in mind when he was referring to it here in Luke chapter two. In fact, if your Bible is an NIV version, the translation of of Luke 2.7 says, because there was no guest room available, and it's probably the most accurate translation of this phrase used in the New Testament. Again, we need to be careful to examine the word of truth and not to allow our holiday tradition to overstep or trample on our holy day truth, especially around the idea of an inn. Maybe the last assumption we wanna talk about this morning is, is the idea that the entire story itself is a myth. You know, I used to read to my children when they were small and we would read a variety of books and, and some of our, our favorites are like Goodnight Gorilla, Where the Wild Things Are. And, and sometimes we would read fairy tales or Once Upon a Time. And we would open those books, but a, a Once Upon a Time moment was unique in that you were going to a mystical land or a faraway place. It was a land of make-believe. Well, Luke chapter two doesn't open Once Upon a Time. This is not a a made-believe kind of story. There are myths and legends out there of a heroic figure who had come from heaven on December 25th, who had some disciples who would follow him and that he would give his life for world peace. There are myths and legends like that, but they're unsubstantiated because there's no scripture, there's no archeology, span there's no historical evidence like there is for the scriptures and for the word of God. So as we look at Luke chapter two and and people may say, oh, that's fictitious. It didn't really happen that way. I just wanna remind you that the gospels are an accurate historical record of the events in the life of Christ, that that they weren't handed down from whisper to whisper. They were written down from eyewitnesses' account about what Jesus did and who he was. In fact, if you have your scripture, flip over a page back, Luke chapter one. And this is Luke kind of setting up his whole gospel starting there in verse two. Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some times past to write an orderly account for you. And he's writing this very special letter to a friend but he starts with the idea that I'm not writing necessarily just what I think happened. I'm taking the eyewitness account and I'm putting it on paper. We should be reminded that the scriptures do that time and time and time again. Peter in his epistle in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, for we did not follow cleverly desired myths when we made known to you the power of our coming Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And then 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 of the disciple John says, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So Peter and John and Luke are all writing from an eyewitness account, not only if they were there, but Luke is writing about the accounts of which he wasn't there, but he's getting eyewitnesses back into him. And he's writing these things down, inspired by the word of God and, and reliable, accurate stories of scripture of who Jesus is and what he has done. Luke chapter two does not begin with once upon a time. What is written is what took place, verified by others, by history, by archeology. span And there's a reality and a reliability of the scriptures that we must lean into as believers. If we think this book is a bunch of stories, then we minimize the power and the glory of God through these words. And so let us be reminded that the case for Christmas is about a, a reality of search for truth of what the Christmas story is really about. Let us remove some of those assumptions that can really distract us and let's really see the truth of Christmas. And so for some of you, you may have to go home and evaluate some of your decorations or maybe you just need to evaluate in your own heart and mind those portions of the story that are most important. Are they biblical? Are they really accounts Because the moment we start adding truth to the truth of the word is the moment that we take the truth of the word away. And so let us be thoughtful this Christmas season over the next few weeks to read through Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2, and to really understand the case for Christmas, the truth of God's word. Let's no longer assume, but let's begin to apply the truth. So what are some applications to the Christmas story this morning that I think would be beneficial for us? Well, I think one is we have to know the truth so we can defend the truth. We have to know the truth so we can defend the truth. Take some time to separate tradition from truth, from, from fantasy, from facts, and, and so that you can help understand the story that you may be able to share accurately this story. If you're not sure which is fact and which is fiction, you're not sure, oh, that's just in a Christmas carol that didn't really take place, then I would just remind you to know the details. Know the details and let the Bible defend itself. If you know the details well of the Christmas story, then you're able to help push away some of those holiday traditions that may supersede or try to trample on the truth. And in those conversations, in those dialogues at school or at work or in your neighborhood, as you're talking with others about the truth of the Christmas story, you'll have a confidence and a boldness because you have understood the truth. When you know the truth, you can defend the truth. You know, spiritually speaking, the Christmas narrative isn't just about a moment in time where God sends his son Jesus to earth It isn't just the beginning of the gospel where the Messiah makes a way for us to have a relationship with God the Father. He sets us free from our sin, although it is those things. But there's often a nuance that we miss. And it's that nuance I want us to unpack a little bit. If the first application is know the truth so you can defend the truth. The second application is this. Him in the flesh empowers us to hold on to faith that him in the flesh empowers me to hold on to faith. You have your Bibles, I want you to look at Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four, it's kind of interesting this last week, I'm in a, I'm in a D group and, and we have moved from, from one um, curriculum to another. And this uh, last week we were kind of unpacking some things and in a daily reading, I came across Hebrews chapter four. And, And as, as I was preparing this message and kind of thinking about that passage, it just, the, for me, and I can't speak for anybody else in this room, but the, the light just came on as to 
what, what really is a truth that we can apply for the Christmas story? So Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says this, since we have had, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now this passage calls for incredible things, a hope, an encouragement, a courage, a confidence. And why do we have those things? Because we have a priest, a mediator between us and God. And, and Hebrews 4 says it's not just a priest. The scripture says it's a, a high priest, someone who has been called by God to be a person over a people. And, and as we look throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, we see lots of high priests. But, but then it describes it even more that we have a great high priest. There's only one great high priest. And the scripture says that his name is Jesus. And he describes him, not just in, by name Jesus, but by position and by title that he is God's son. It's identified that way in verse 14. And because he's God's son, because there's a relationship between God the son and God the father, that his home was in heaven. But beyond that, he identifies with us. That this great high priest, Jesus, God's son, lived in heaven, he identifies with us. As we think about Emmanuel, which means God with us this Christmas season, I've often forgotten about the truth that God isn't just in heaven. God's not just here at church. God's not just in the places that I want him to be at. God is with me. He is for me. He knows me. He understands me because he was once a human, once understanding the human condition. Like a coach who was once a player, Jesus understands humanity. Jesus understands humanity because as God's son, also human, he comes to earth to be born in a small town to two no-name people in a very, very humble way. And it's in this humility and it's in this humanity that gives me what we just sung about, a thrill of hope. Hebrews chapter 2, just two chapters earlier, describes this a little different. You're taking notes. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Let me read it for you. Speaking of Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, isn't that an incredible avocation of the Christmas story? Because he was human, because he understands suffering, because he understands sin and temptation, the realities therein, he can sympathize with us and help us. He's not just God there, he's God with us. Verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 4 describes this idea of weakness, that Jesus 
surrendered his heavenly citizenship so he could be sympathetic to our weaknesses as one who understands our weaknesses. Now the word here, it's a difficult word to translate. It might be best translated like this, that he understands or is sympathetic to the human condition. That Jesus, our great high priest, understands what it's like to be human. And in an act of like shocking, incredible love, he took on human flesh and lived the human condition so that he might sympathize with us. That's what the Christmas story is really about. In the words of Paul David Tripp, he says he knows what it's like to be homeless, hungry, rejected. He's acquainted with disease and physical pain. He knows the power of accusation and injustice. He has faced the the siren voice of temptation. He knows what it's like to be forsaken by loved ones. He understands suffering and death. Jesus stared evil in the face Yet he knows us and has first understanding of what we deal with day in and day out. And what's miraculous about that is that he did it all without sin, never falling to temptation, never grieving the Holy Spirit, always in step with the Father. And it's this perfection that allowed him to be our substitute as our great high priest to take on the sins of humanity by dying on the cross for our sins that we might have eternal life through faith in him. That's how we apply the Christmas story. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of our great high priest, because of his humanity, his ability to be sympathetic for us should give us a confidence, as the scripture says in Hebrews 4, to boldly go to the throne of grace. Him in the flesh empowers us to hold on to faith, encourages us and emboldens us to come to God. God came to us that we might come to him. And Jesus made a way for that to take place. That's how we apply the Christmas truth. Applying Christmas is running to God the way Jesus ran to us. So I want a question for you this morning. It could just be one, just one question today. What causes you to hesitate to go to him? I mean, if we were really honest about where we are in our relationship with God, many of us, we walk with Jesus daily. Some of us walk with Jesus weekly. Some of us walk with Jesus in a season or a time. Some of us are struggling right now. But all of us in the room can, can, if we were honest, we would say that we've hesitated at times to go to God. What keeps us hesitant? So me and my family, we, um, we got a new dog. And his name is Finn. And he has a longer full name. I can't remember it. My son Sawyer has named him. It's like 12 names long. But his name is Finn. And Finn is, uh, he's a four-year-old uh, poodle. I'd never thought in the world I'd get a poodle, but we got a poodle and he's pretty awesome. Um, and so he's four months old. He's very much a puppy and we get him out and we're still doing the crate training stuff and he's outside and he's inside. And, you know, Brooke is a very vigilant puppy mother. Like she makes sure when he's eating, he's going outside and all that stuff. And that's kind of where we are as a family. We're very concerned about where the dog is and what he's doing or what he's eating or a variety of other things. And so when I call him, sometimes he doesn't come to me. Here, buddy, sometimes he just stops and he gives me that look like, I don't know who you are or what you want. And it's an incredible kind of thing as I was kind of unpacking that this week and preparing for this morning. I think sometimes he doesn't come to me because of fear. Like, oh, the, the tall man with the deep voice, he's, he's, not, he's not happy right now. There's fear, that's why he doesn't come. Maybe he's selfish. He just simply doesn't want to come into the door. His nose takes him his own way. 
Maybe Finn is greedy. I don't have a treat for him to come, and he knows that. He's like, no treat, I'm not coming. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Maybe, and I'm convinced, for him at least, it's really about uncertainty. He's paralyzed by insecurity, not sure what I really want or what he should really do. And I think we do the same things as humans. We hesitate to come to the throne of God because we're afraid. We're afraid God's unhappy with us. And so we don't go to him. Maybe we're selfish. We just want to do our own thing. We defiantly disobey the Lord. And so we, we know that about us. And so we're going to do our own thing. God's told me A, but I'm choosing B. And we know that's where we are. And so that's why we hesitate to go to the Lord. Maybe it's greed. We might ask God, hey, what's in it for me? Or maybe something bad has happened and we're waiting for God to do something good. And we're waiting for him to, to do something for us. And so it's the selfish desire. Where's my treat, so to speak? But I think most of us, if we were honest, would would probably fall where Finn is, that we're just uncertain, we're insecure. What will God think? Am I good enough? Will he want me? What does he need? I'm afraid that if I go to him, he's gonna give me something to do and I don't know if I wanna do that. I don't know if I wanna give that up. I don't know if I wanna pay that money. I don't wanna go on that mission trip. I don't know if I wanna serve those eighth grade. I don't know what God wants me to do. And so it's a reality of uncertainty. And can I just say this? Whatever's keeping you hesitant from approaching the throne of God, I, I guarantee you, God's desire for you is to look to him and say, yes. God, I'll, whatever you want me to do, I'll come. I'll come to you like you came to me. Like you understand me, Jesus. You, you know me. You know my pains. You know my worries. You know my temptations. You know where I'm struggling. You know everything about me. There's not a sin or a temptation that's, that's not uncommon. Like you get it. You understand me because you were once part of who I am. And because of that, we shouldn't allow fear, or greed, or selfishness, or insecurity ever take over our ability to go to him. We are secure through Christ. He understands our pain. He understands our trouble. He understands our sin. And Romans 5.8 is such an incredible truth. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He still loves us. And so believe the truth of Christmas, that we are secure in Christ. That is an open invitation to come to him. And so I want to challenge you over the next few weeks as you're engaging in the Christmas stuff. Every time you see a Christmas ornament, a tree, a wreath, you're thoughtful about Christmas, be reminded that Christmas is an open invitation for you to come to that throne of grace. And whether it be for the first time ever in a reality of salvation that you've recognized that you have sin in your life, that it's keeping you from a relationship with God and therefore eternity with him in heaven, that invitation is for you. That you can go to Jesus and you can say, here is all my stuff. And I'm giving it to you and inviting you to be Lord of my life and trusting you. And the scripture says, and it is so clear that he takes all of that stuff and he wipes it all off the table. And scripture says that he makes our heart as white as snow because he was our great high priest. He was our substitute. For some of you, you've made that decision in salvation. Yet you would answer that question, am I hesitant of God? What's keeping me hesitant from God? There's a list of answers in your heart and in your head. And I just want to tell you, whatever's keeping you hesitant from the Lord, go to him. Go to him. It's an open invitation. He desires that you want to, to come to him. And he's asking you to boldly and with confidence approach that throne of grace.
to be a help in your time of need. And it's all because of Christmas. Through Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us, all because of Christmas, the moment God gave Jesus to live among us, to love us, to show us God's love for us, that we could be with him. It's all because of Christmas. So don't allow your holiday to overwhelm your holy day. See the truth of Christmas by the accuracy of the story. And remember the implications are for those that you need to defend the story, but are for you who need to receive that story.